Section twenty two of Italian Hours by Henry James. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. From a Roman Notebook, Part two. At a later date, middle of March, a ride with S. W. out of the Porta Pia to the meadows beyond the Ponte Nomentana, close to the site of Phaon's villa, where Nero, in hiding, had himself stabbed. It all spoke as things here only speak, touching more chords than one can now really know or say. For these are predestined memories, and the stuff that regrets are made of, the mild, divine efflorescence of spring, the wonderful landscape, the talk suspended for another gallop. Returning, we dismounted at the gate of the Villa Medici and walked through the twilight of the vaguely perfumed bird-haunted alleys to H's studio, hidden in the wood like a cottage in a fairy tale. I spent there a charming half-hour in the fading light looking at the pictures while my companion discoursed of her errand. The studio is small and more like a little salon. The painting, refined, imaginative, somewhat morbid, full of consummate French ability. A portrait, idealised and etherealised by a likeness of Madame de Dash from last year's salon, in white satin, quantities of lace, a coronet, diamonds and pearls. A striking combination of brilliant silvery tones. A femme sauvage, a naked dusky girl in a wood, with a wonderfully clever pair of shy, passionate eyes. The author is different enough from any of the numerous American artists. They may be producers, but he's a product as well. A product of influences of a sort of which we have as yet no general command. One of them is his charmed lapse of life in that unprofessional-looking little studio, with his enchanted wood on one side and the plunging wall of Rome on the other. January the 30th A drive the other day with a friend to the Villa Madama on the side of Monte Mario, a place like a page out of one of Browning's richest evocations of this clime and civilization. Wondrous in its haunting melancholy, it might have inspired half the ring in the book at a stroke. What a grim commentary on history, such a scene. What an irony of the past. The road up to it through the outer enclosure is almost impassable with mud and stones. At the end, on a terrace, rises the once elegant casino, with hardly a whole pane of glass in its facade, reduced to its sallow stucco and degraded ornaments. The front, away from Rome, has in the basement a great loggia, now walled in from the weather, preceded by a grassy, belittered platform with an immense sweeping view of the Campagna. The sad-looking, 
more than sad-looking, evil-looking Tiber beneath. The colour of gold, the sentimentalists say, the colour of mustard, the realists. A great vague stretch beyond of various complexions and uses, and on the horizon the ever-iridescent mountains. The place has become the shabbiest farmhouse, with muddy water in the old pièce d'eau, and dunghills on the old parterres. The feature is the contents of the loggia, a vaulted roof and walls decorated by Giulio Romano, exquisite stucco work and still brilliant frescoes, arabesques and figurini, nymphs and fawns, animals and flowers, gracefully lavish designs of every sort. Much of the colour, especially the blues, still almost vivid, and all the work wondrously ingenious, elegant and charming. Apartments so decorated can be meant only for the recreation of people greater than any we know, people for whom life was impudent ease and success. Margaret Farnese was the lady of the house, but where she trailed her cloth of gold, the chickens now scamper between your legs over rotten straw. It is all inexpressibly dreary. A stupid peasant scratching his head. A couple of critical Americans picking their steps. The walls tattered and befouled breast high. Dampness and decay striking in on your heart. And the scene overbowed by these heavenly frescoes, mouldering there in their airy artistry. It's poignant. It provokes tears. It tells so of the waste of effort. Something human seems to pant beneath the grey pall of time and implore you to rescue it, to pity it, to stand by it somehow. But you leave it to its lingering death without compunction, almost with pleasure for the place seems vaguely crime-haunted, paying at least the penalty of some hard immorality. The end of a Renaissance pleasure-house. Endless for the didactic observer the moral, abysmal for the story-seeker the tale. February the 12th. Yesterday to the Villa Albani, over formal, and as my companion says, too much like a tea garden, but with beautiful stairs and splendid geometrical lines of immense box hedge intersected with high pedestals supporting little antique busts. The light today was magnificent. The Alban hills of an intenser broken purple than I had yet seen them, their white towns blooming upon it like vague projected lights. It was like a piece of very modern painting, and a good example of how nature has at times a sort of mannerism, which ought to make us careful how we condemn out of hand the more refined and affected artists. The collection of marbles in the casino, Finkelmann's admirable, and to be seen again. 
the famous Antinous, crowned with lotus, a strangely beautiful and impressive thing, the Greek manner, on the showing of something now and again encountered here, moves one to feel that even for purely romantic and imaginative effects it surpasses any since invented. If there be not imagination, even in our comparatively modern sense of the word, in the baleful beauty of that perfect young profile, there is none in Hamlet or in Lycidas. There is five hundred times as much as in the Transfiguration. With this at any rate to point to, it's not for sculpture, not professedly, to produce any emotion producible by painting. There are numbers of small and delicate fragments of bas-reliefs of exquisite grace, and a huge piece, two combatants, one on horseback beating down another, murder made eternal and beautiful, attributed to the Parthenon and certainly as grandly impressive as anything in the Elgin marbles. S.W. suggested again the Roman villas as a subject. Excellent if one could find a feast of facts a la Stendhal. A lot of vague ecstatic descriptions and anecdotes wouldn't at all pay. There have been too many already. Enough facts are recorded, I suppose. One should discover them and soak in them for a twelve-month. And yet, a Roman villa, in spite of statues, ideas and atmosphere, affects me as of scanter human and social portée, a shorter dinner reverberation than an old English country house, round which experience seems piled so thick. But this, perhaps, is either hair-splitting or racial prejudice. March the 9th. The Vatican is still deadly cold. A couple of hours there yesterday with RWE, yet he, illustrious and enviable man, fresh from the East, had no overcoat and wanted none. Perfect bliss, I think, will be to live in Rome without thinking of overcoats. The Vatican seems very familiar, but strangely smaller than of old. I never lost the sense before of confusing vastness, sancta simplicitas. All my old friends, however, stand there in undimmed radiance, keeping most of them their old pledges. I am perhaps more struck now with the enormous amount of padding, the number of third-rate, fourth-rate things that weary the eye desirous to approach freshly the twenty and thirty best. In spite of the padding, there are dozens of treasures that one passes regretfully, but the impression of the whole place is the great thing. The feeling that through these solemn vistas flows the source of an incalculable part of our present conception of beauty. April the 10th. Last night in the rain to the Teatro Valle to see a comedy of Goldoni in Venetian dialect, I Quattro Rostigi. I could but half follow it, 
enough however to be sure that for all its humanity of irony it wasn't so good as moliere the acting was capital broad free and natural the play of talk easier even than life itself but like all the italian acting i have seen it was wanting in finesse that shade of the shade by which and by which alone one really knows art i contrasted the affair of the evening in december last that i walked over also in the rain to the odeon and saw the plaideur and the malade imaginaire there too was hardly more than a handful of spectators but what rich ripe fully representational and above all intellectual comedy and what polished educated playing these phoenicians in particular however have a marvellous entrain of their own they seem even less than the french to recite in some of the women ugly with red hands and shabby dresses an extraordinary gift of natural utterance of seeming to invent joyously as they go later last evening in h's box at the apollo to hear ernesto rossi in othello he shares supremacy with salvini in italian tragedy beautiful great theatre with boxes you can walk about in brilliant audience the princess margaret was there i have never been to the theatre that she was not and a number of other princesses in neighbouring boxes g g came in and instructed us that they were the m the l the p etc rossi is both very bad and very fine bad where anything like taste and discretion is required but all there and more than there in violent passion the last act reduced to much however to mere exhibitional sensibility the interesting thing to me was to observe the italian conception of the part to see how crude it was how little it expressed the hero's moral side his depth his dignity anything more than his being a creature terrible in mere tantrums the great point was his seizing iago's head and whacking it half a dozen times on the floor and then flinging him twenty yards away it was wonderfully done but in the doing of it and in the evident relish for it in the house there was i scarce knew what force of easy and thereby rather cheap expression april the twenty seventh a morning with l b at villa ludovisi which we agreed that we shouldn't soon forget the villa now belongs to the king who has lodged his morganatic wife there there is nothing so blissfully right in rome nothing more consummately consecrated to style the grounds and gardens are immense and the great rusty red city wall stretches away behind them and makes the burden of the seven hills seem vast without making them seem small there is everything dusky avenues trimmed by the clippings of centuries 
groves and dells and glades and glowing pastures and reedy fountains and great flowering meadows studded with enormous slanting pines the day was delicious the trees all one melody and the whole place a revelation of what italy and hereditary pomp can do together nothing could be more in the grand manner than this garden view of the city ramparts lifting their fantastic battlements above the trees and flowers they are all tapestried with vines and made to serve as sunny fruit walls grim old defence as they once were now giving nothing but a splendid buttressed privacy the sculptures in the little casino are few but there are two great ones the beautiful sitting mars and the head of the great juno the latter thrust into a corner behind the shutter these things it's almost impossible to praise we can only mark them well and keep them clear as we insist on silence to hear great music if i don't praise guicino's aurora in the greater casino it's for another reason this is certainly a very muddy masterpiece it figures on the ceiling of a small low hall the painting is coarse and the ceiling too near besides it's unfair to pass straight from the greek mythology to the bolognese we were left to roam at will through the house the custode shut us in and went to walk in the park the apartments were all open and i had an opportunity to reconstruct from its milieu at least the character of a morganatic queen i saw nothing to indicate that it was not amiable but i should have thought more highly of the lady's discrimination if she'd had the juno removed from behind her shutter in such a house girdled about with such a park methinks i could be amiable and perhaps discriminating too the rudovisi casino is small but the perfection of the life of ease might surely be led there there are english houses enough in wondrous parks but they expose you to too many small needs and observances to say nothing of a red-faced butler dropping his edges you are oppressed with the detail of accommodation here the billiard table is old-fashioned perhaps a trifle crooked but you have guercino above your head and guercino after all is almost as good as guido the rooms i noticed all pleased by their shape by a lovely proportion by a mass of delicate ornamentation on the high concave ceilings one might live over again in them some deliciously benighted life of a forgotten type with graceful old salle and immensely thick walls and a winding stone staircase and view from the lodger at the top a view of twisted parasol pines balanced high above a wooden horizon against a sky of faded sapphire may the seventeenth it was wonderful yesterday at st john lateran 
The spring now has turned to perfect summer. There are cascades of verdure over all the walls. The early flowers are a fading memory, and the new grass knee-deep in the Villa Borghese. The winter aspect of the region about the Lateran is one of the best things in Rome. The sunshine is nowhere so golden, and the lean shadows nowhere so purple as on the long, grassy walk to Santa Croce. But yesterday I seemed to see nothing but green and blue. The expanse before Santa Croce was vivid green. The Campania rolled away in great green billows, which seemed to break high about the gaunt aqueducts. And the Alban hills, which in January and February keep shifting and melting along the whole scale of Asia, were almost monotonously fresh and had lost some of their finer modelling. But the sky was ultramarine, and everything radiant with light and warmth, warmth which a soft, steady breeze kept from excess. I stole some time about the church, which has a grand air enough, and I don't seize the point of view of Miss Dash, who told me the other day how vastly finer she thought it than St. Peter's, but on Miss Dash's lips this seemed a very pretty paradox. The choir and transepts have a sombre splendour, and I like the old vaulted passage with its slabs and monuments behind the choir. The charm of charms at St. John Lateran is the admirable 12th century cloister, which was never more charming than yesterday. The shrubs and flowers about the ancient well were blooming away in the intense light, and the twisted pillars and chiselled capitals of the perfect little colonnade seemed to enclose them like the sculptured rim of a precious vase. Standing out among the flowers, you may look up and see a section of the summit of the great façade of the church, the robed and mitred apostles, bleached and rain-washed by the ages, rose into the blue air like huge snow figures. I spent at the Incorporated Museum a subsequent hour of fond, vague attention, having it quite to myself. It is rather scantily stocked, but the great cool halls open out impressively one after the other, and the wide spaces between the statues seem to suggest at first that each is a masterpiece. I was in the loving mood of one's last days in Rome, and when I had nothing else to admire, I admired the magnificent thickness of the embrasures of the doors and windows. If there were no objects of interest at all in the Lateran, the palace would be worth walking through every now and then to keep up one's idea of solid architecture. I went over to the Scala Santa, where was no one but a very shabby priest sitting like a ticket-taker at the door, but he let me pass, and I ascended one of the profane lateral stairways and treated myself to a glimpse of the Sanctum Sanctorum. Its threshold is crossed but once or twice a year, I believe, by three or four of the most exalted divines. 
but you may look into it freely enough through a couple of gilded lattices. It is very sombre and splendid, and conveys the impression of a very holy place. And yet somehow it suggested irreverent thoughts. It had to my fancy, perhaps on account of the lattice, an oriental, a Mahometan note. I expected every moment to see a sultana appear in a silver veil and silken trousers and to sit down on the crimson carpet. Farewell, packing, the sharp pang of going. One would like to be able, after five months in Rome, to sum up for tribute and homage one's experience, one's gains, the whole adventure of one's sensibility. But one has really vibrated too much. The addition of so many items isn't easy. What is simply clear is a sense of an acquired passion for the place and of an incalculable number of gathered impressions. Many of these have been intense and momentous, but one has trodden on the other. There are always the big fish that swallow up the little, and one can hardly say what has become of them. They store themselves noiselessly away, I suppose, in the dim but safe places of memory and taste, and we live in a quiet faith that they will emerge into vivid relief if life or art should demand them. As for passion, we needn't perhaps trouble ourselves about that. Fifty swallowed palmfuls of the fountain of Trevi couldn't make us more ardently sure that we shall at any cost come back. 1873 End of section 22